excited about this passage. This is like a passage that speaks so much to my heart. I don't know if you've been memorizing a passage here in the book of Philippians. This is definitely mine. It was mine even before this. Has anybody memorized Philippians 2, 1 through 5? So, has anybody memorized Philippians 2, 1 through 5 and would like to actually recite it right now? Kirk, go ahead, Kirk Am. Kirk Valencia, ladies and gentlemen. You can, you can just shout it from here, that's fine. Amen. Amen. Thanks. And remember, as we make our way through to the end of Philippians, we're going to be asking you all to each pick a section uh, as you've grabbed it and on a volunteer basis and, and, and be able to really enjoy how the word of God has, has really made its way through our entire being uh, and helped us to really be shaped like Christ in, in this way. As I mentioned, this is a passage that's so dear to my heart. And the reason being is it helps me to realize what it is from which I've been saved. When I was a 29-year-old, I was what, what was a, kind of a common phrase at the time. I was the stereotypical yuppie empty suit. I was a shallow, hollow, despicable Man that only went after all outward appearances, all self-serving striving that led to nothing but an insecurity that was built on top of an even more unstable foundation. And as a matter of fact, often the dream that I would have, even as I was making advancements in my life, uh, kind of uh, rung after rung of climbing up the corporate ladder, at, uh, at, I was at Coca-Cola USA. And, and every time as I would get the next promotion, I would quickly be able to look through a, a certain directory to see, is there anybody that is younger than I am at this level? And if there were, oh my goodness, then you know, terror would strike me again. It's like, I've got to advance, I've got to advance. I mean, it was so competitive and petty and small and ugly. And all the time, I had this recurring dream it was always this recurring dream that I would be found out. That some way or another, the emptiness that was me, the striving after nothing but self and self-accolades, would somehow show itself. Because there was no character under the surface of that iceberg that was my life. All there was was just the tip with nothing else underneath it. It was all, all fraudulent. And, and so this dream haunted me again and again. 
in, in some way or another, I would, you know, kind of undermine all that I had worked for. You know, suddenly see all the, the rungs of the ladder kind of just crash before me and me fall uh, in a way that was, you know, kind of like a Greek tragedy. And I, this Greek tragedy would play itself out again and again and again in my dreams. And here's the interesting part, is when Christ finally grabbed me and shook me up and shook me loose and made me whole, I've never had that dream since. And I thank God. I thank God that he had pity on me, the most despicable, privileged, entitled, nasty, selfish, little blot of defilement that has ever stained this world. And that he would take consideration of me. As much as I have com completely rejected all the advances that he had made again and again, that he would still consider me and allow this, this passage to really be what describes who I am in Christ. And, and it all begins, as Paul often does, with this affirmation of who we are in Christ. And it's in this portion of the letter where Paul really begins to now lay out, okay, here's where we go. Philippian church, Hampton Roads church, collectively, if this letter is to have its impact, Philippians or Hampton Rodians, on us, then, then this is where we go. But before he gives the charge, before the imperative or the, or, or the command is laid out, as he often does, he reminds us, of who we are in Christ. Not just individually, but collectively. As this magnificent, integrated team that has been called and put together, Avengers assembled in a cosmically awesome way in Christ, that, that this is who we are. And this is what Jesus has already done for you, even on your worst day, as you sit here in Christ, this is what Jesus has already done for you. And by the way, if you're not yet in Christ, if you've not yet known the great eye-opening surrender and the scales falling from your eyes and the repentance that makes things clear and the affirmation of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the receipt of the Holy Spirit and spiritual rebirth, if, if that is not what, what you've known, then this is not yet your reality. But guess what? It will be. Because it's God's will for you. No doubt, this is God's will for you. And what is it that, that he says here, as, as Kirk you so eloquently laid out for us, therefore, if you've got any of this, any of this, and it's not like if, it's, it's really, in, you know, kind of it's a, an if-then statement. Not like maybe this has happened to you. It's like since this has happened, then this is the response. Right? And so what is it that has happened? Well, you have... Encouragement from being united with Christ. This word encouragement is a deep idea of exhortation and it's pericoleo. It's the idea of the best friend that comes alongside of you, grabs you by the shoulders and says, I'm with you no matter what. Times will get tough. Times will get great. Either way, I'm there with you, whether to kind of lift you up or to keep you sobered. I'm here with you. And Paul says, if this is any experience, and it is for you in Christ, wow, how blessed you are. And I bet you're wondering, how do I express my gratitude? Because I've got Jesus 
who somehow made me his precious possession, who scanned the, net, the, the, the mess that was my life and decided I've got to disrupt that girl, that guy. I've got to get in there and really show them the love and be there with them and have this depth of, of, of real encouragement together. And he goes on to say, if you've got any comfort from his love, this is a, a deep idea of, of not just, I got you by the shoulders. This is, you need a hug. You know what? You've gone through some tough times and Jesus is there. You need a hug. And I got you. And I'm not going to let go. I won't be the first to break this hug. No way that's going to go on. I get it. And by the way, if you don't think I get it, why don't you just read about me and see what I went through? I went through some mess. And, and he'll... Paul will talk about it in verses 6 through 11. We'll look at that next week. It would be nice if we could kind of jam it all together, but we're going to have to take this in two parts. But, but, but Jesus knows. He knows what it is to be rejected. He knows what it is to, to be humiliated publicly. He knows what it is to despair. He knows what it is to be frustrated. He knows what it is to try his best and only to see all things fall apart. He also knows what it is to be destitute. He knows what it is to have pain. He knows what it is to have loneliness. He knows all of, of that, and he's ready to be not just got you, but got you as well. But it goes further than that. It's not just that he's your encourager and he's your comforter, but do you have any partnership? Uh, you know, as, as Andy just shared during the communion, that word communion is the same word here as partnership, koinonia. It's this idea that you are on Jesus' team. I mean, how, how great would it be to realize, like, I'm on that team. I'm on the stand getting the medal. You're part of the fierce five. You're part of the final five. You're, you're, you're part of the, 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 the 400 relay. You're on that team. Yes, you. No, yes, you. You're part of it. You've got camaraderie with, like, the, the most astounding of fellowship that you could ever imagine. And you've been chosen. Ah, not me. You don't know. yes. You, and, and, and the more despicable, the more clear it is that you were chosen, not of your own accord, but because he decided with the great love with which he loved you to, to look down and grab you and you're on the, get up here on the metal stand. Come on, this is, this is your new life. This is your new status. This is how you walk around. You're on the Jesus team. You have the spirit of Christ. You are in fellowship, koinonia, with him. That's your life. You're like, whoa, really? And it's affirmed again and again by scripture. Okay, then what do I do with this, right? What do I do with this? Paul's going to get to that. But before he does, he's like, and one more thing. If you've had any of this, any affection, any compassion, these are deep words. Oh my, the word affection here is, is a word that we've looked at a couple weeks ago because he's used in it before. It is a passionate, deep longing. It is when Jesus sees the leper in Mark 1 and his heart goes out to him. He has a deep compassion of a man that's not been touched by any other human for so many years. He doesn't just heal him, but he reaches out and he gives him human touch because he's so moved at the sight of the man. And the two words there are both this compassion and mercy that are put together there. And that's what Jesus had for me in my ugly smallness of self 
and selfish ambition and self-striving and nastiness that was all wrapped up in the, in the defiling uh, yuppiness that was my life. And, and I deserved, I mean, the worst of all terror, the worst of all judgment. I really did. All that I had as privilege, I used it to abuse and to take advantage. And it was nasty and it was ugly and it's shameful, shame, shame, shameful. But in the midst of all my nastiness, he melted my heart. And he did it for you as well. Not only did he take all of that to the cross, but he also worked out my life so that I could actually know about this. He put people in my life. He put the Bible in my life. He actually insisted on me staying in the Bible. I didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what I'm going to do? In all of my great achievements, I'm going to add this to it as well. No way. And I remember dearly in 1992, in December, writing in my journal, because I was all about me and my goals and my vision and my mission and my you know, different plans of 10 years and all. I had all of that down. And I remember at the very end, after all this wonderful striving and grandiose mission statements about what a great man I am and what a great man I'll be remembered by, that, that at the end I also put, hey, you know what? I'm in Dallas, Texas is where I was at the time. I'm in Dallas, Texas. Maybe, you know, because a lot of people are kind of like, you know, all Jesus-y folks out here. Maybe I'll put a little like Jesus-y thing in here. But I'm not going to use the word Jesus, not in my day planner. That's for like losers who need Jesus all the time. I'm just going to put, I need to be kind of more spiritually rounded out. Because, you know, I don't need that crutch of Jesus. Just a little spiritually rounding out because I got it going on. Oh, the ugly, right? I mean, Jesus still had the compassion and mercy. And, and, and I remember so clearly with that kind of you know, mechanical pencil and, and realizing, whoa, I'm actually putting this down for the first time in my life. I'm making a spiritual goal. And, and all the goal said was, maybe get more involved with a church. That's all that it said. And that was my January 1, 1993, small little goal after all my big goals about self, 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 self. And oh my goodness. Uh, the, the, the angels just flew into motion and put the people there. <laughs> like, you don't know what you're asking for, but it's coming your way. And thank you, God, that, that none, I, I, if that's my, like, pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, well, that's pretty anemic and, and ridiculous, right? I mean, n nobody would ever say, oh, look what I actually earned by, you know, kind of writing to round out myself and have a better. And this is what it was. I wanted to look better in the corporate corridors as a man of character that was a church-going man. And that's the only reason I put it down. How amazing is Jesus? That he loves us so dearly. Compassion and affection. The deep, deep, I mean, from the bowels is that word, that bowels love. I, it's like my, my guts are going out to you. I love you so much. I mean, that's Jesus to you. I, I'm like, ah, I wish I could just kind of just wrap myself around you and just take my heart and just give it to you as a gift. And it would, I know it would be disgusting, but yeah, you know, it was kind of golden maybe. And I just want to just give you anything and everything that I have and let you know how much I love you. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's what's being described here by Paul. And that's what we all got. The encouragement, the comfort, the partnership. We're on the team. We've got this love. We've got this compassion. We've got this mercy. And so if that's all the case, then what is it that we're meant to do? And that's all verse 1. And verse 2 then is, well, then Paul says, then here it is. I know you're probably champing at the bit right now. I used to think that phrase was chomping at the bit, but it's not. Champing at the bit. You're champing at the bit. Like, 
Let me go. Let me kind of, where's the starter gun? Let's get after this race. What should I do? And he says, here's, you know what's going to really encourage me about what you're doing in Christ? Make my joy complete. Finish it off. And here's, here's what it is. Like-minded, like love, same spirit, one mind. Get, but in the midst of all of that, as you come to this place of, of oneness with one another, and everything about Paul is that he wants the Philippians, as they grow, to grow more closely together. And if all of this is you thinking, okay, what is it that I need to do? Then we probably have already missed the mark. Because it's really, what is it that we need to do? There is no um, singular indicative that is a, a declarative sentence that is about anybody singular in this letter, nor is there anything that's a command that is singular. All of it is communal. So everything that I say when I say what you need to do, just always hear, as we sit here in Virginia, all y'all. What is it that all y'all need to do? What is it that we need to do collectively having been brought together in Jesus? What's the right response having been given all of this in Christ? What could we do? Well, have the same mind about God, about the world, about one another, about our, about our lives. Have the same thought process. And in this word, this thought process, this mindset, this understanding of all things is used repeatedly through this passage. And then it's also used finally when he says, and have the same thought process, the same understanding, the same worldview as Jesus. Get a, get a Jesus brain going on there, and, but, but do it collectively one with another. If you want all this grace and astonishment to count for something and now you're looking to reciprocate, well then do it and do it together. Get after it. Not just the same mind, but then you use it and the same love. The same, the same love that Jesus had for you, you have for one another, you have for the world that's all around you. Jesus laid himself down. Have that kind of love for all the people that are around you. You want your life to count for something? Well, then get after loving everybody the way that Jesus loved. And my goodness, you will have it all brought back to you tenfold again of realizing, my goodness, what it is that Jesus has arranged for me to be able to do. But not just the same mindset and the same love, but to have the same spirit. The, the word that he uses there is um, the same psychos. Uh, psychos is kind of the idea of kind of soul or self. Uh, to, to have, it, it's this idea of like this esprit de corps purpose. Like have the same rousing mission is, is probably a good way to think of this. Have the same rousing mission that captivates you all collectively that was Jesus's rousing mission. You want to honor all of this great stuff he has? Well, then let that be what characterizes you Philippians, you Hampton Roads. And then to say it one more time, and by the way, that mind thing that I was saying a minute ago, Paul says, do it one more time. You, you, you need to think, that, and now here's the beauty part, is that when, when I was a young Christian and I first went to visit other churches that were in our fellowship, the, the thing that really struck me wonderfully is, oh my goodness, everybody here is like everybody that I was just with in Dallas. 
I remember going to Atlanta because I worked for Coca-Cola. I remember going to, um, to Albuquerque, to going to Denver, to all of these different far-reaching places. And, and they were very different culturally. And you know, the, the Denver church was kind of mainly like white and Hispanic. The, the Atlanta church was, was, was predominantly a black church. Uh, Albuquerque, likewise, a, a Latino church. And, and in all of these different churches, it was as though the color, the nothing mattered. Because God had so powerfully worked that everything was so like-minded. Same love, same purpose, same rousing mission, same mindset of thinking about everything. And, and, and similarly, that this is still the case. Praise God, this is still the case. That doesn't come about because we have some sort of a curriculum that trains people to, to think that way. Who, who could ever have, be so effective in a curriculum of that? But it's, I mean, it's one of the things that, hey, there's a God. And for sure, He has given us His Holy Spirit. If not, this is freaky deaky. How people far flung around the globe can, can so quickly and easily love one another. You know, I get a chance to, you know, go to different places like, you know, Philippines or uh, London or even Australia, but, but even India a lot. And so a lot of people want to know, like, what, what was like the culture like there in India? But you know what? I don't really know the Indian culture. All I know is the Holy Spirit culture that has taken over the Indians that I've had fellowship with. All I can say is they're exactly like everybody here. I mean, they, they are of the same rousing passion and mission and love and concern and understanding and focus and priority that everybody else I know. And as a matter of fact, what are they like in India? Well, what they're like here. That's amazing. That's the work of God. That's what we get to be part of. And my goodness, to try to fight against that and try to be someone that tries to go against the grain rather than contributing and refining this great mindset that the Holy Spirit has given us. Wow, you might be fighting God. And how wonderful it is to be in alignment with Christ himself. And so that, that's his charge for us. And that's where we head to. But in doing so, he then gives some practicals. Hey, you want to pull this off? Well, then there's some don'ts and some do's. And the don'ts are no self-promotion and no hollow glory. But instead, let it all be about humility and esteem of others. One no-go, the other go for it, all you got. This idea of self-promotion, selfish ambition, as I mentioned earlier, that's my life. You know what that was? It was everything to serve me. Everything I do, even going to church, even putting down, be spiritual, get involved with the church, all of that, bottom line, to serve me. Let none of that be in you, Paul says, as he, as he gets after this. But here's the really convicting idea, is he then says, do nothing out of vain conceit. The word there is a very, really rich word, and it's kenodoxia, and ken, keno is a word that will be used of Jesus later. Is that although he had equality with God, he emptied himself. Keno is the word to empty. And doxia is the word for glory. So keno, doxia, is empty glory. That if you try to get after some great achievement out of selfish ambition, you know what you've achieved? Empty glory. Comes to nothing. And it's, it's just a mere facade. It's cotton candy. It evaporates as, as soon as you think that you've gotten some sort of uh, nourishment from it. 
It is, it is of zero value whatsoever. And it's only bravado, braggadocia on our own part that as soon as it leaves our mouth, it dissipates into the air and amounts to nothing more than that. If anything that we do is for self-gain, if anything that we do is for self, take care of me. And, and you know, it's very easy to kind of get into that mode, especially in a church like Philippi, where hard times had come their way. They were impoverished. They were being crushed by persecution. And it's so easy when things like that come your way to think, you know what? I just need to take care of number one right now. You don't know what's going on in my life. And you want me to come to the worship service? You want me to go on that outreach? You want me to join in in the Bible talk and be a, a, an active, vital part of a small group that encourages one another and tries to have an outreach to our community for Christ? You don't know what's going on my, my, my way. You know what? The more we focus on the impoverishment or the persecution or even the pain of whatever it might be, you know, and, and, I, and I'm not trying to belittle it, but, but when that becomes our focus and Satan is able to get our eye off of, the, uh, off of the real ball, then that focus only begins to grow and begins to overwhelm us. And interestingly, the more that we focus on self, the more keenly we become aware of our deficiencies, our pains, our hurts, our, our needs. And the more that we are, then the more we focus on self. And it's a nasty downward spiral that, that leaves us surrounding ourselves with ourselves. But instead, he says, humility, esteem others. As a matter of fact, the, the phrase that he kind of uses at the end of this, don't make self your aim, but aim for others. This word humility, um, you know, we know it as a really good word right now. Ah, that's a humble brother. That sister who showed such humility in, in, in our talk just then. And we think that, wow, that's like the ultimate virtue. Not to any secular ear that would hear the word. And, uh, and I, I, I tried to you know, go through and look at different examples of people using the word humility. This is super rare that it would be introduced by Jesus into our following of him and by his own example as a word that could be anything positive. If we were to think of synonyms for humility to a Philippian, Roman uh, kind of honor society, you know what they would think of that word as? You're a wimp. You're a weakling. You're anemic. You're lowly. You're sickly. You're a wuss. Like that's what you'd be taking on yourself to say, yes, I'm wearing the badge of humility and imitating my Christ. Oh, really? What kind of God do you serve? That's so just repulsive to, to, to the ears of, of the Philippian secular society that would be around them. That's the amazement of Christ, though. Because he has to make sure that you have this sameness that is Christ, that is in you. Jesus made himself nothing, and in doing so, was more exalted than we can even begin to measure. Never had a title. Never owned anything besides some clothes. Didn't have a place to live. No place to lay his head. Didn't know where his next meal was coming from. Never wrote a book. Never had an achievement. Never did any of those things. Emptied himself completely of self. Really personified what it was to be wimpy and weak and insignificant and lowly. In the eyes of all that around him. But in doing so, 
initiated a response that changed the face of planet Earth. Never traveled more than a few dozen miles away from his home. Never wrote down anything. Simply lived a humble life. And what a difference that he was able to make. And, and of course, not only this humility, but make your life about others. Yeah. And it's easy to say, right? Make your life about others. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but it really is esteem others. Now, the NIV says, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's uh, the NIV 2011. And it does something unique. It recognizes that the word also is probably not in the original text. I mean, that's how radical this statement is. You know, many translations will say, don't look to your own interests only, but also to the interests of others. Right? I and mean, that's a common sentiment. And when we hear it, that's the way we want to hear it. Well, of course, you know, I need to take care of myself and you know, do all that I need to do for myself. And, and, and Paul, no, no, no. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what I'm saying to you, Philippians, despite the culture that's crushing in on you right now. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. You want to know a Jesus life? You want to know a Jesus exhilaration? You want to be enthralled like I am when I, when I know what... It is Paul speaking, not me. <laughs> when I want to know Christ and to somehow share in Him, well then, get rid of the me. Get rid of the self. Remove self. Now, when the world removes self, they don't really have something to fill that vacuum that's so amazing. Uh, but before I get to that, let me, let me just show you an example of something uh, that, that I find a little bit interesting. Look at all of these kind of wondrous virtues. Righteous, focused, determined, promotion, centered, sufficient, praise, confidence, congratulation, important, seeking, serving, justified. Though, I mean, to have any of that described about you, you'd be like, yeah, that would be kind of nice. But you know how you can completely defile this list? That's how. Look what happens to every one of those virtues. They are flipped on their heads and drugged through the garbage. And, and instead left with a stench of repulsiveness. Self-righteous, self-focused, self-centered. Self-congratulation, self-important, self-seeking, self-serving, self-justified. Right? <laughs> Who wants that? But the minute that we invite the mindset of the world and the mindset of our before Jesus mindset back into our life, before we decided to deny self, take up our cross and follow Him. The minute we kind of buy into, yeah, but I got to take care of number one. You don't know what's going on inside my home. You don't know what I'm dealing with my kids. If you have my marriage, you be, you be inward focused as well. You know what? There are plenty of massive forces that are trying to get you to buy into self, self, self. And it's the very mindset of Satan. It's what made Satan, Satan. is the exaltation of self. And the minute that we want to demand and be entitled to something about self, we lose sight of all the joy that this letter shares. And all the power as well. And we're left only with this 
defiling list of what we are. Now, by the way, to say don't be selfish is not unique to just Christianity. I mean, the Dalai Lama once said, our prime purpose in this life is to help others. If you can't help them, at least don't hurt them. And that's from the Dalai Lama. Big hitter, the Lama. Long. It's Caddyshack. Tony, seventh son of the Lama, flowing robes, grace, bald, striking. Uh, Tony Robbins, also a striking character, but not a Christian. Oh, by the way, Dalai Lama, not a Christian. Unregenerate, not in any way uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and you know what? You feel like, oh, how dare you say that? It's what Jesus would say. Like, we've got we to be okay with, uh, instead of buying into a postmodern world, be okay with the, the wonderful exclusivity of making Jesus Lord. And that only through Jesus are we really spiritually regenerated and brought to the Father. So I like to throw that in from time to time just to kind of be, oh, that's right. No, oh, I, I, I can know, so easily kind of uh, form to this world. Uh, Tony Robbins, only those who have learned the power of selfless contribution experience life's deepest joy and true fulfillment. Tony Robbins, not a Christian. Nobody would ever confuse Tony Robbins for a Christian. I remember going to one of his seminars back in my self-serving, self-achieving days, you know, standing in my, you know, business suit, jumping up and down saying, yes, I'm important. Yes, I'm important. And uh, all of the things that go on in those kind of hype uh, conferences that, that, that he puts on. Uh, and, and even if it's when you're acting selflessly that you're at your bravest. That's from the movie Divergent. <laughs> Not a Christian. So, what's the big deal then about selflessness? Is that in, how is that in any way unique to the Philippian church or unique to us? Well, it is, it is unique to us because our selflessness is the same as Jesus' selflessness. It is a selflessness that is marked by humility, lowliness, debasement, anemic, wimpified humility. That the world would, would, would look at with disdain. But we recognize has ultimate, ultimate power. And as we have the same mind as Christ. Here's the big deal. And, and this is really convicting. Is that. Uh, I was listening to a, to, to a sermon. Uh, that, that Tim Keller had preached. And uh, let me read to you a little bit from, from what he wrote. Jesus shows us what we can do. Do you know in all his wisdom, it all came from the Father, he said. Do you remember the place in scripture where he asked, when are you coming back? And he says, I don't know. God hasn't told me. All that wisdom because he was dependent completely on the Father. He wasn't doing it in his own wisdom. He was being the perfect human being that God meant for us all to be. He was being a servant. All of his power, all of his healing, all of his miracles, all of his greatness. There was not one thing he did that you and I couldn't do if we were just as dependent on the Father as He was. You think about that. It's an indictment, he goes on to say. It's an indictment. We know what it is that God would have us do. But the only reason that we don't really do it is we're constrained by self. 
But think if self really were not in the way and the Holy Spirit were able to be expressed completely, the Spirit of Christ, through our lives, what we would do. Not just individually, collectively. What we would do. If we didn't care about our own needs, our own entitlement, our own reputation, if we cared not for any of those things, allow them to fall to the ground, take away self, and really be left unfettered, unfiltered, to be able to do the work of Christ amongst ourselves in this community, what God would do through us. But when we keep up the boundaries of self, we only go so far. And the more that life becomes about self, the tighter those boundaries become. The more constraining the work of our life is. Until ultimately, we live very small lives indeed. What's the antidote to this? Well, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, if you have that fellowship, if you've been redeemed by Christ, it is simply this. Simply remove self. In any way that self has found its way back in, simply remove self. Now, the uniqueness of a Christian is, when we remove self, guess what fills the vacuum? The Spirit. The Spirit that dwells within us. The very Spirit of Christ. Left then, unchecked by our own small selfishness. Left unchecked. My goodness, what happens? When we allow that to be the case. And we drop the walls of self. And suddenly what it is that we're able to do, collectively especially, is astounding. So to close out, ask yourself this question. What can you do? What will you do when you truly remove self and live, as Jesus did, for others? It's a very important question as we move forward in this study of the book of Philippians. There's no room for self in this study of Philippians. Now, don't only just ask yourself this question, but as it says there, discuss it with someone who's in partnership with you in the gospel. Discuss it and get excited about what it is that God can do through you, what it is that God can do through us. Amen. Amen.